This is a Culture Inject production. Hello everyone, welcome again to the Nevers podcast, where we review and dissect every episode of the Nevers. Thank you so much for your support, and thank you to each of you who has left a review. The way that people find the podcast is by reading reviews, and particularly on Apple Podcasts. So thank you so much to those who have gone to Apple Podcasts and contributed. And if you would like to help us out as well, please do the same. Go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, and write a few kind words about us. It's very much appreciated. And speaking of reviews, here's one from J9 at C, who left a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. So far, much prefer your podcast than the Touch podcast. Enjoy your commentary and insights. I find that after listening to your podcast, I go back and rewatch the episode. It's very interesting to see all the little bits and pieces that I missed. So thank you for the review. Uh, so today we're back to review episode five, titled Hanged. Joining me to discuss this episode is Chirag. Hey, what's up, the Nevers fam? Uh, you can stream the Nevers podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, YouTube, and anywhere else that you can stream podcasts. Any uh, comments, questions, or interview requests can be sent to theneverspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, a little housekeeping. So the Nevers podcast continues to climb the Apple podcast charts. We had over 10,000 downloads last month and we're looking to surpass that number for May as we've already surpassed 7,000 downloads as of recording this episode. Our episodes have been averaging 2,000 downloads per episode. So thank you to our listeners for tuning in every week and for the positive feedback that you've been giving us. We really appreciate it and we're glad that you're enjoying listening to us. Uh, so before we get into our review and analysis of this week's episode, we have a listener-submitted voice recording from Scarlett Walker. So let's give that a listen. Hi, this is Scarlett Walker from Birmingham, Alabama. Big fan of the pod, a big fan of the Nevers. So I have a theory about Amalia's turn and just Amalia's story. So, towards the beginning of episode four, Amalia and Penance have a conversation where Penance says something along the lines of, I can't imagine how many funerals you've been to. And Amalia replies, none. We don't have those when I come from. We don't have enough time and we don't have enough ground. She doesn't say, we don't have those where I come from. She, it's when I come from. I rewatched it many times with subtitles. It's definitely when. So I think she's from another time period. I think she's from the future. And because she's from the future, when she was touched, she gained the turn of being able to see into the future. She gained the turn of the ripplings. Um, also, definitely sensing some alien spacecraft stuff because the fact that she says we don't have enough time and we don't have enough ground to me that says they're always either time traveling flying around in that ship some combination of the two and because they are always traveling so quickly and they're on this ship they don't have 
any ground to bury people in. So, just a theory. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I touched on last week, wasn't it, that I picked up that she said when instead of where. Um, And I also, yeah, that leads me to believe that she's possibly from the future. There's a few bits that I'll pick up on from this episode five that also lead me to believe that. Are you on board with that now? Yeah, I think all the people with their theories are also seeing into the future. I think they have their own ripplings. <laughs> I, uh, you, yeah, you called it. Um, I think it's an interesting insight, and I think a few other people had it that because Amalia is from the future, that she can see into the future, because it kind of the whatever power it was that administered these powers is kind of enhancing what already is there. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. So uh, let's kind of just... Let's read the synopsis for this episode. So this is episode 5 called Hanged. It aired on May 9th, 2021. Uh, The synopsis is as follows. As the city buzzes with anticipation over a pending execution, Penance, played by Anne Skelly, grapples with a moral calling at odds with Amalia's plan. With the two women at a crossroads, the orphans must decide whom to follow. Cast and crew, all the usual players, introducing no one new. Uh, Written by Melissa Iqbal, directed by Joss Whedon, and uh, initial impressions. Uh, Yeah, so I really enjoyed this episode. It was so much to get through and so kind of, there's so much happening that, yeah, I got to the end and felt like, I need to watch this again, um, which I did. And, yeah, I guess if I'm to pick uh, my favourite moments from this episode, I really liked seeing Penance have a really strong view and her really kind of fighting for that, and I liked seeing the relationship between her and Amalia. I feel like it was a point where, you know, it could have been a real fight between them, you know, a whole civil war type thing, but they handled it very well and still with humour and it was just perfect. I also like seeing a lot of character development and a lot of just crazy reveals going on. Everything was happening and because it was set, I didn't realise at first it was it set, you know, a month or five weeks or so after the end of the last episode until they, they uh, Amalia mentions it later on. So it's kind of like... Everybody knows what's going on and seems to have everything underhand and we're kind of watching as viewers not really knowing. <laughs> but um, yeah, I found it really, really interesting. Yeah, we're, we're a bit of a step behind. Uh, this episode for me uh, is all about Malady. Uh, Malady, Malady, Malady. Uh, she, really, uh, she really graduates... In, to sinister, I, I I think like she legitimately comes out on top over everyone's heads, and then yeah, uh, just really like lavishes in the chaos she created. Uh, I think like she cackles maniacally like the Joker in the very end, taking off her wig. Yeah, I, I really loved it, and I think her biggest victory in this episode. Uh, sorry, going back to the the religious parallels, but. I think she, her biggest victory here was successfully playing out the Jesus arc for herself, because as we know from her Effie Boyle performance, she kind of does see herself as a savior for the touched. 
Like she says, the only one showing the human side of the touched is herself. And um, we see the parliament power people like Lord Masson. They see her as a threat to their order, to their status quo. Just like the church establishment saw Jesus as a threat to their order. And then the people of London are kind of all riled up and demanding her public crucifixion. And then she's killed, in quotation marks, and she'll resurrect herself maybe three days later. Um, I, I, I love the parallels there and how she managed to kind of uh, make herself into that figure. Um, and then uh, uh, before we before we started this review, like a couple days ago, I just glanced a little bit at what Reddit was saying. And let me tell you, like, I, I feel like just as an audience at this point, we're a render farm of absolutely every conceivable idea that could possibly exist. <laughs> so there's genuinely nothing a story can do these days or a TV show that fa the fans have not already fan theoried to some extent. So I know there were some people who were who were saying like they called it that on the internet that the real Effie Boyle was dead and Malady was doing the double role. I did not see that coming at all. So like I peripherally noted the Effie Boyle's visual and voice similarity to Malady. But I didn't really think much of it. So the twist like gave me whiplash. It, it was really effective. Uh, yeah, I feel I, like I I watched the um as soon as she came up in this episode, I I noticed straight away she sounds exactly like Melody. And as soon as it went in closer, I was like, oh, it is her. So I'm like wondering what's going on, whether it's something crazy going on or whether she just switched places. But I went back and watched episode three or four. Um, where she first shows up and realised that it's, yeah, it's her, but it wasn't as notable in that previous episode. But yeah, it was it was really great. It was really fantastically done. Yeah. Uh, and I also wanted to mention that um, I saw someone uh, mention the scene where Malady rescues Harriet as a kind of a metaphor, like a girl lying face down on broken glass while people trample over her. Uh, just like the, the apathy of an uncaring, self-interested society, and that's something that Malady can empathize with. So uh, I, I, I really enjoyed that insight, and I think we are kind of on the path to her self-actualization. Like, as we've seen from her Effie Boyle performance, she can be cunning, she can be sinister, she can have an agenda that's, that she strategically, uh, pushes forward she's a trickster a chaos maker kind of like a loki uh of the yeah. of this world i think she's a valuable force that's gonna come to a head soon Definitely. dive into some discussion yeah we'll go straight into the discussion um so moving through the episode um we open up with the the glowing orb cracking open a little bit and i don't know if we're meant to be worried or scared anticipating what what it is and and what is going to happen if this thing fully opens up and does something. <laughs> Still not, even after this episode, no clue. Um, no one seems to know, but uh, we'll find out at some point, I'm sure. And then we go straight to Amalia and Horatio uh, to see that they're definitely still in the throes of this affair, which is 
kind of unexpected because from where we left off, they were kind of talking about, or at least Horatio was saying about how it's a mistake and it's not something that he wants to be thinking about or doing anymore. And then here we see. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I was a little I bit shocked, to, actually. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the opening. So the opening, like, fluidly cuts between, like you mentioned, the orb cracking and then Amalia, Amalia and Horatio's affair and then Malady's execution verdict. And then we see a prostitution appointment in the orphanage with Desiree and some boy. And the connective tissue throughout all of this is Penance's reaction to it all. She's like a, she's a very honest, transparent character. And I think uh, she's in this episode, she's wrestling with the contrast between her idealism, her inner child... And the very adult, violent, unforgiving world in which she lives. Like, she doesn't, she doesn't want to build weapons of destruction, but the world hangs nooses outside her door. And, and she's not, she's not used to dealing with men or her sexuality. And throughout this episode, we see her kind of confronted with like, uh, possibly negative, destructive forms of sexuality, like, infidelity prostitution bird watching uh uh she's she's like a disney character living in a game of thrones world and and (laughs) i think that that informs her thematic journey here in very interesting ways and i feel like her decision to save malady comes from her hanging on to her idealism desperately clutching to it in the face of the rising black tide of violence and despair and utter annihilation uh all things that amalia kind of already accepts you know she's she's down she's down with it yeah i I think you're right it is kind of focused on her reaction to everything because she is kind of taken her and similarly with augie i see them as the the kind of innocence of the show they're I don't know, they seem untainted and yeah, she's in this world where all of this stuff is going on and it is interesting to see her reach that point where she she cracks, just like the orb underground and realises she needs to really stand up and do something um, and take charge of the situation. So yeah, it's really interesting. Right, and I think uh, um, it's mentioned a little bit later that it's no coincidence that the orb is cracking on the same evening that... Uh, malady is being executed so it seems like there's some kind of conscious will at at play here that whatever entity is in that orb is expressing disapproval of malady being executed i think and the the conflict that happens later on in this episode between penance and amalia where penance wants to go rescue Malady, while Amalia wants to go rescue the the Galanthi, uh, it's interesting that Penance is actually doing the bidding of the Galanthi by prioritizing Malady as opposed to Amalia, who's just kind of straightforward going for the Galanthi. But uh, that's, I guess that's a that's a point to unpack a little bit later. Um, we can move on to the scene where Lord Masson and his associates are meeting to discuss Malady's execution. So we have Prince Al- Albrecht, 
uh, I didn't pronounce his name properly. So uh, <laughs> the prince thinks it's barbaric, while the others believe it's necessary. Um, it's suggested that the prince's daughter might be one of the afflicted, and that's why he's sympathetic to the touched. During one conversation, it's reaffirmed that pain gives malady power and strength. Another big revelation is that Lord Masson and his cohorts are responsible for Mary's death. Uh, we, uh, this is a quote. Uh, we showed our hand sicking that ghastly gunman cruise on Mary Brighton. Wow. <laughs> yeah, this was this scene alone was a lot to unpack. Um, so I think the whole uh, episode actually very dialogue heavy, very um, like like I said, had to kind of rewatch to take everything in fully. I mean, there's so much going on just in this alone. So we're told that they've got this new uh, blue badge act, right? The registration. Then, yeah. So I mean, that's already like I said, we're only what a month within a month. All of this has already happened. So within a month, the the government's decided that all touch need to be registered, which is a scary prospect because that gives um, them power over them, you know. Right, it's where, very, where, very pre-Holocaust. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's scary. It's And, and for, the, for the touch especially, but also you can see with, with Prince Albrecht, it's like if his daughter is touched, you know, he's part of both worlds and he's trying to both, protect his family and also not be pushed out of a position of power where he may be able to influence um, and change the touch lives for the better. But obviously in any way that he's doing that, even here they just they just think that his daughter might be touched and they're already kind of shutting him out of, of the scene. Right, and uh, to kind of uh, uh, megaphone some of the theories out there, who is it that brings up the fact that the prince's daughter is touched other than Lord Masson himself, who a lot of people are thinking that maybe his daughter is touched? Yes. So that's an interesting tidbit. What did you think about the revelation that uh, it's Masson who was responsible for Mary Brighton's death? I think that it's crazy that we're given this information so kind of offhandedly. And I think it's it's like that with a lot of information in this episode. Uh, so obviously, yeah, we were kind of talking, you know, is it Lavinia? And I was thinking that it, it probably was. And we were kind of with the interrogation with Masson and Amalia. He basically owned up to it. So to have it, you know, 100% confirmed, it was him. Yeah, we, um, were, we were totally wrong. Yeah, we, we, were, <laughs> we were Amalia false. I don't know if I'm with you. I know you're saying that I'm trying to hang on to this like shred of hope for Lavinia. So maybe this was my that was probably my way of thinking. Oh, if she if she at least was in charge of Mary's death, I've got something to kind of really dislike her for. Because now after this episode, I'm kind of like back on the Lavinia kind of um, kind of with her. Still, the things that she's doing are very questionable. But I feel like she's yeah. I'm kind of now back on team Lavinia. <laughs> <laughs> well, as far as Masson being responsible, uh, it's it goes into that whole the state orchestrated murder, the barbarity of the well-off. Now that that's been revealed, I can at least feel comfortable saying that Masson has at least story-wise become almost irredeemable. I initially yeah. had a little bit of 
sympathy for him based on what we saw happen to his daughter. But now that that's been called into question and we don't really know what the fate of his daughter exactly is, I think maybe he's being set up to be the bigger villain than Lavinia. But but I I still I still uh, disagree with you about Lavinia a little bit, and we're going to discuss her pretty pretty yeah. uh, thoroughly a little bit later. So uh, moving on to the next scene, we have Amalia and Penance form their plan to get underground to the glowing orb, which we now know is called the Galanthi. So how do you feel about everyone talking about the Galanthi like they knew about it all along? There's no bu- big build-up to this. Yeah, again, I, I've touched on it a couple of times, but I feel like that's a running theme of this episode, is that we're completely behind. These guys have had a month to, I guess, learn about everything and take it all in. So they're talking about it like it's, you know, something that's always existed and they know it's there and it's just totally normal. Whereas for us, we're just like, Galanthi this, Galanthi that, what, what? You know, um, just... It's strange because for us it's something that's completely otherworldly and we still don't know about it and they're just talking about it like it's like it's nothing. Um, I was just saying I think we're supposed to be playing catch up just like one step behind because if, if we were one step ahead of the characters we wouldn't really care about them as much or the plot. So it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think it's great though because in most other TV shows once there's a discovery I feel like you get... You know, you know like... Um, how most superhero films are, this is how this person came to be. Um, you get that background story on them and, and that's how it starts. I like the ones where it just dives into their lives straight away because you've seen the the how they were made story a thousand times or read it in the comic books. You know, you don't need it. You can jump straight into the action. And this is doing that. We're right there oh, in the action. I don't know what you're They're talking not- about. I, a Batman's origin is a mystery to me. <laughs> do you know what I mean? They've seen it so many times. Why do we need another one? Um so it's nice for them to just jump in and we're there with them, not knowing what's going on, but we're, yeah, we're not just having it like spoon fed to us and over explained, like someone having a bit of dialogue that, that's like, oh, by the way, the Galanthi is blah, 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 you know, but just talking about this scene in general, I like how, uh, I just love how Penance is, um, I love all the acting in this show is so natural and I, I find it really easy to watch and the the comedy for me is so just there you know it's not it's not forced at all so 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 penance having the different names for her inventions that never quite fall right it's like well no this is just an x-ray it's like no it's a spectral occult <laughs> she keeps trying yeah. to have like creative okay. names yeah yeah <laughs> she's trying to be really cool with it but it's just not working <laughs> Uh, so moving on to some Lavinia action, uh, we see Lavinia uh, visiting the digging site again. This is quite a nice scene because this is the first time we're seeing more of Dr. Haig. Um, so Lavinia orders Dr. Haig to kill it before it kills everyone else. She's very on edge in this scene. She's clearly very scared of, of this glowing entity. There are plans to remove the Galanthi from the underground site to a bunker outside of the city. Uh, she wanted to reverse engineer a cure for the touch, but now she believes that that dream was naive. She's obviously worried about going any further with that because she thinks that this thing might, I don't know, destroy the whole of London and kill everyone. They talk and then at the end of the scene we see that the shop assistant uh, touches a 
like a bucket underneath and it floats. So we see that she has her powers still. Um, and she gives a look that kind of implies that she is with it, kind of knows what's going on. And I don't know if that's going to mean possible escape or something along those lines. My theory is uprising. I don't, I don't know if lobotomies heal, but I think maybe they're going to, they're going to use their powers to maybe set the Galanthi free or do something. Yeah, or is maybe the Galanthi giving them, like strengthening their powers that the Doctor's trying to take away? Oh, could be. Healing. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, just thought about that when you said that. But um, yeah, it's interesting to see more of Lavinia and the Doctor uh, together. Was it just me or uh, was the Doctor and Lavinia's interactions like weirdly sensual and touchy? Because Lavinia is so vulnerable in that in that scene, and the doctor is kind of comforting her and touching her leg, and you know they're, mm. they're, they're heavily looking into each other's eyes. Yeah, I did wonder if there's been something there before. Yeah, it was very. I think the whole episode was kind of like that. We got a lot of a lot of action going on, and a lot of more in depth looks at people's more vulnerable sides um, and their emotional states. It was. But yeah, it was nice to see Lavinia not with her head screwed on almost. You know, she's panicking. She's, and and I'm kind of more, you know, I'm still, I'm still there. I'm on a level with Lavinia where I'm kind of like, okay, she seemed to have been doing this to try and help the people and protect the people. What she's doing to the touched is horrible and horrific. But if that's the only way that her and this doctor think they can, you know, find either a cure for the touched or at least get this thing out of London to save people. You kind of, you know, there's a reason there. Right, like there's a the like the there's a means to an end or something like that. The doctor does mention that the it's more a chrysalis than egg, which means it's transforming into something. He says from liquid into and then he kind of drops it, but we don't we don't know yet. Uh, but I think that probably means that it's not humanoid. And if Amalia is uh, presumably acquainted with it, my question is, uh, why why didn't she understand its language at, when Mary was singing it? Um, and if and if the yeah, I'm I'm not sure. It's it's there's a cloud of confusion over the whole thing for me. I'm not quite as uh, able to look into the future as the folks on Reddit. Uh, so then we go back to the orphanage Uh, we see the returning orphans disposing themselves uh, of their blue badges the the little ribbons that we'd seen earlier on in episode 2 at the party um, which we now know the you know the big wigs are making them are making them wear making them be registered we then have the article on Malady written by Effie Boyle uh, which Desiree is reading out which is, you know, a little bit of comedy there because she's not the strongest reader. Um, everyone's in the courtyard. Uh, I like how how they say she's terribly compelling, which is humorous on watching it a second time because you know that it's Malady that's written this. So for them to be reading it in a way that they're connecting to, you're thinking they're connecting to this person who they shouldn't necessarily be, even though she's touched, she's a murderer and everything, so it's it's really interesting. Um, we also see Bonfire and Nimble uh, practicing their powers on each other, which I love because it's 
almost the first time we've seen people just playing with their with their powers, with their turns, their training and using them in a real way that is the first time we've seen really like their superpowers. Uh, the I think Nimble explains to the audience why they suddenly trust her as part of the group. Yeah. Because a month has passed and she's there. I thought that was a little uh, like uh, too expositional. But it, it was it was fine, you know. I, I, I like her powers. She adds an interesting dynamic to the group. Oh, sorry. I think she mentions that uh, um, Nimble is a boy, not a girl. Yeah, it says um, men are the men. We are... Right. Yeah. <laughs> also, we get a couple interesting things. So they're talking about the Galanthi again, and we have no info on that still. Um, uh, the... The writing, uh, she writes, it's a crack in the soul of the city. So that, again, is another moment where you're like, okay, that's a crack, just like in the Galanthi. And I like it because, again, at the time, you don't know it's Manady that's written it, but then when you find out it's Manady, it's like she knows that the Galanthi is there as well. And Malady is a good journalist, damn it. She's really good. She's got a way with words. And then we see Harriet's impassioned... They're hanging Malady for being touched. And then it cuts to the touched are now having to register with the city and are being directed to wear the blue ribbons at all times. So we're going back to that very pre-Holocaust thing of these people are in danger. They're being identified and targeted, uh, registration, all that kind of stuff. We see Effie Boyle again. Uh, who is hounding Mundy for an interview with Malady, which he uh, repeatedly refuses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this whole scene, like I said earlier, was just great. When I first watched it, I just thought to myself, oh, that really sounds like Malady, like Amy Manson. And um, I couldn't remember much of her first appearance in the previous episode. So I wasn't, like, I remember really not paying super close attention to who the actress was um so then here I, I was like oh that really sounds like her what's going on uh, it wasn't until she entered the office and you get a closer look I was like no that is definitely her with like some fake teeth and stuff going on um so t- for her to be there in the midst of the police <laughs> when they you know before they're looking for her and now they think they've got her incarcerated she even uh, on my second watch going back having 100% confirmed that it was Malady, she points at the photo of the real Effie Boyle and she, he, he says murder victim. Obviously she knows because she must have been the one to kill her. Um, she says that she um, she has that same coat. <laughs> she's literally there telling him that she knows who it is and that she's stolen her identity and he is none the wiser. So it's, I mean, it's hilarious once you know, because yeah, she's literally right there in the midst trying to get, trying to get an interview with Malady, even though she is Malady. Yeah. And it's crazy that she can blend in so well. You would never guess she can turn off that flamboyance. So Augie regales Lavinia with the story about ice skating uh, with Hugo as kids. And we learn that Lavinia wasn't always chair ridden. Augustus and Lavinia meet for tea. Lavinia is clearly on edge and suffering side effects, headaches, courtesy of the Galanthi. So that gives us a reason, um, you know, 
we know because I know underneath underground she's a bit on edge but she's like it still so yeah is it is it messing with her mind it's at least giving her headaches but is it also messing with her you know her personality and putting her on edge uh, she warns Augustus to steer clear of Swan especially now that his club has become a matter of public record which is humorous for us because we know that he has put his name on this club she also advises him to stay out of the city during the hanging. He lies and tells her that he'll be in Brighton. Um, also, at the end, you see uh, the drawings on the table and uh, one of them is penance and she clearly sees that. I find it interesting that she doesn't scold him about it. It's almost like she's letting him have some freedom, which is nice to see. Well, I think she kind of pre-scolded him about it because I think this is my okay. This is my favorite scene in the in the show. Okay. Uh, follow my logic here. I could be totally wrong, <laughs> but she mentions to Augustus that he trusts too easily, right? Yep. And then when Augustus kind of earns her ire by apologizing to the cafe guy, she mentions there there are there are vultures everywhere. Mm. So we know that Augustus, we know Augustus's affinity for vultures from the pilot episode. So I think when Lavinia refers to vultures, she's potentially referring to Augustus. Because as we know, Augustus lies to her about going to Brighton in that scene. And when Lavinia sees that drawn picture of Penance, I think she knows that he's lying. So she was low-key expressing that she can't even trust him anymore. And right. it was, there was almost a resigned attitude to it. One, my little brother, uh, I, is, I've is i lost trust there, too. Hmm. She's clearly a very distrustful person. And I think the fact that she used to skate, right? That was, that was part of that conversation. Maybe whatever it is that handicapped her from being able to skate might be at the root of her distrust of people. Something traumatic must have happened to her. For me, this was kind of a scene for me to see a little bit of her human side where she's for once not not lecturing him and not doing something downright, you know, awful. Um, and they're having a little bit of a reminiscence about their kind of normal life, nothing to do with the touch at all. And then just, you know, ask for something nice from Brighton. I don't know. For me, yeah, for me, I just, I, that's what I got from the scene was just, oh, nice, their family. And maybe she's just not going to be as mean to him anymore. But yeah, uh, I see. I, think, yeah, I, I, I understand exactly what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. I think she is going to be mean to him. I think there's, I think, I think there's a rift de- that's going to develop between them. But we'll see. We'll see. So next we see uh, Mundy and Swan facing off again. Uh, the Ferryman's Club is facing pushback as the tides turn against the touch. Uh, Lord Humphreys pressed charges against Swan, uh, which leads Mundy uh, to warn Swan to keep his people at the club safe. Swan asks Mundy why he took a job that he clearly hates and Effie is there again and asks Swan for a favour, whispers in his ear at the end, which is now leading me to wonder what that favour was, which I'll, I'll speak about later on once we get to the end scene. But um, yeah, this was, again, very character-focused, this, with their more vulnerable sides of their relationships, I think, this episode. Hugo 
defends the touched for his own kind of self-interests, but once again, you're right. We're, we're seeing that same side to Mundy, where a lot of his hatred towards Hugo is, I think, externally directed self-hatred. Um, I am surprised at how such a righteous cop who kind of holds the wealthy accountable is allowed to keep his job in such a corrupt society. I would imagine a guy like Hugo or any of the, you know, aristocrats would just throw a couple of dollars uh, in the uh, police department's pocket to hire a new detective. Yeah, you're right. It's funny that they don't have their own man, like someone that's tied in with them uh, at the head of the police when they're trying to get away with all this stuff in the background. We see in a fleeting glance, we see that um, Penance has scars on her back. We see it when she's uh, 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 bathing or something like that. I think maybe maybe that's why her name is Penance. Maybe it's like a self-flagellating thing that like the albino guy from the Da Vinci Code was doing. Right, yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. That's something to be seen. And then we see Augustus visit, and he's going to be using birds as a distraction from the drilling. Yeah, I liked this scene. Again, we're seeing everyone's kind of more vulnerable side. Um, she's bathing. I, I personally didn't notice any scars. Uh, we looked up online to see like some people's theories and stuff. Um, and yeah, some people have written, like you said, kind of the religious side. Um, other people were just like, oh, maybe it's just from wearing a corset or whatever. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't pick up on anything myself. But I like how, you know, she sees this bird and her first thought is, well, it must be Augie, you know. <laughs> and it's just perfect timing, you know. She says, Augie. He's like, hi. Oh, God, no. <laughs> um, no I'm not. <laughs> I'm definitely not spying on you whilst you're bathing. Um, I like that two-thirds of their interactions have been penance accusing Augustus <laughs> of either murder or voyeurism. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, oh, my God, I hope you're not, you're not recording me again, aren't you? Uh, I love the when Amalia walks in, am I interrupting? And he's like, yes, please. <laughs> because they're having such an awkward interaction. He's like, thankful to be saved. You know what I noticed? Uh, I noticed shades of Simon and Kaylee from Firefly. Actually, it's right, exactly, yeah. exactly that. Because Penance and Kaylee are both like these golly gee whiz technology ladies and Augustus and Simon are both kind of awkward, nerdy guys from a wealthy <laughs> background who yeah. are defined by their relationships to their sisters, Lavinia and River. I, it's like it's like uh, it's like they're uh, Whedon is kind of recycling these archetypes and adding different, like slightly changing the dynamics. Yeah, they are the 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 cute, innocent ones that you really hope will make it in the end. <laughs> I like how when they get to talking about the the mission with the drilling, first of all, the drill breaking, because again, like the um, kind of fire extinguisher she builds, you know, not everything's perfect, um, which is funny. I also like that they're looking for answers, Amalia says. Is it safe? Who's down there with it? The, the Galant. Yeah, hope, uh, the, the main thing they want to be looking for is hope. So... Yeah, I like how, yeah, she's thinking that there might be people down there with it, which is interesting because there are. <laughs> yeah, there are. And 
we might see that in the next episode. I'm really hoping that we see that half of the mission, that it will just play back to that. So next we see Lord Masson visit the Beggar King. Uh, Masson, so it turns out that it wasn't the Beggar King, it was Lord Masson who set Odium on Amalia's um, path to go fight her and kill her. And then uh, Masson wants the Beggar King to stir up some chaos. I was going to say we see uh, Masson and the Beggar King are very similar. They're opposite ends of the same coin. It just seems that Masson is fighting the change, whereas the Beggar King is embracing and adapting to the change. Yeah, definitely. Because like he says, you know, he's come from nothing. When you've got nothing, I guess you've just got to roll with the roll with the tide. You've not got the power to inflict the change. I, I, I liked, there's a few things here that I liked. Masson says that a thing that threatens the natural order is monstrous, even if it's pretty. So again, just reiterating his fear of change and, you know, talking about penance and the car that she's made that she, an uneducated uh, Irish woman, shouldn't be uh, conceiving such things. But, I mean, she's clearly educated. She's she's a smart cookie. I don't think her turn has given her her smarts as such. It's given her this ability to see energy, but I think she's always been uh, very smart, which is why that power's probably gone to her. That's why she was literally empowered. Yes. <laughs> also, Masson says... Uh, that these people are rewriting the laws of reality. And later on in the episode, uh, Amalia says that the fate of the world as we know it hangs in the balance when she's arguing with penance. And both of them, for me, are talking like they know the future. She knows that what they're doing is going to directly affect not just the future, but but that specific future like uh, yeah I, th- I think you totally have your your thumb on the pulse there only i would say that while amalia is a futurist and has her mind on the future i think uh masson more so has his mind in the past that's what i would say because he doesn't want i, I mean sure if you have your mind on the past then you also have your mind on a future they go hand in hand but i think he doesn't he he wants to he wants the future to be the the past. He wants them to be the same thing. Yeah, scared of change. Right. And then yeah, inciting the beggar king to stir up some chaos, just <laughs> adding fuel to the fire. He wants um, the biggest outrageous mess as possible to make the make the touch look look as bad as possible. And he's doing it independently from the rest of those parliament guys. Uh, penance. Uh, kind of lamenting losing Lucy in her conversation with Amalia. Uh, I think that's kind of a, a, the extension of her wrestling with her ideals versus the reality of what's happening and, you know, the gulf between them widening and widening. And um, she thinks she very, I don't want to use the word naively, but maybe I'll keep using the word idealistically. She's, she thinks that Amalia would never kill Lucy but the reality is that Amalia did want to kill Lucy that's the reality mm-hmm. and those that's a conflict between what she, what she wants to be true and what really is true there's a lot of that conflict for her 
Amalia talks about how Myrtle speaks Galanthe, which is useful. And the I don't want to say she's a bit heartless, but I feel like it's kind of like, you know, she wants to help Myrtle, but only because she can speak Galanthe and it will be helpful. Almost like she's not as attached to these people as the rest of the orphans are. And then obviously we see all of the, the nooses hanging outside and that that is, you know, the turning point for Penance, isn't it? That's the thing. It's like, it, I think Penance thinks that letting people kill Malady is a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. It's a noose that will lead to a row of nooses. That's the that's the danger that we see visually represented when, I guess, the purists knock at their door and actually hang those nooses. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty violent, scary image, and in her like wrestling with those ideals, where she she doesn't want to create these <coughs> machines of violence and destruction. Yep. Um, and even uh, the power that she's been given, it has a destruction and a violence to it that she's kind of having to confront. And ideally, she she I mean, ideally, you want to just create. Uh, just create a cute little motor car but sometimes reality necessitates violence or at least that's the argument uh, that's being made I think. Yeah also just the thing that the world as it is um, you know people use things that aren't necessarily weren't necessarily meant for war and stuff they use them badly so even if she has the best intention with her inventions you know, once you invent something and you put it out there, it becomes the world's, right? So it's anyone's to use as they wish, and that's a scary thought. Yeah, and that was, that was like the great regret of Project Manhattan, the, the guys who made the nuclear bomb. Yeah. I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. We do see uh, Penance conceiving a way to break Malady out of jail, uh, and Amalia resists, but eventually she gives in. And uh, the team picks who they want to follow. So Horatio, Annie, Augustus, and Su Ping Lim, who later joins Penance, uh, initially go with Amalia. And Harriet, Desiree, Nimble, and George join Penance. What are your thoughts on those alliances? Okay, so first of all, I love this whole thing. I mentioned at the beginning that it's nice to see them separate and have their own entirely different opinions, but still totally remain friends, you know, um, because this could have been a turning point. Uh, I read the synopsis for this episode and I was really worried that they were just going to completely start hating each other or something. But so it's really nice to see them, like how this whole thing was handled, because it's possible to have completely different opinions and be best friends. So that's nice to see. So... Uh, just touching on what they say inside before the picking of the teams as such. Um, she says about the, the future of the world depends on the present. Isn't that why you're here? Um, she also mentions, she talks about Sarah or Malady. You know, what what did she do? Uh, because she says, what I did to Sarah. And it, it's again one of those things where I feel like she's talked to at least penance about this. We don't know, but they know what what she did because uh, all we know as such is that she she left her yeah so i want to know more about that but yeah the teams this is really great so the whole thing was hilarious she's saying you know 
don't do what Pennant's doing. She doesn't offer anything other than, you know, don't do that. That's mental. And uh, <laughs> that was great. Uh, Pennant's is like, I rehearsed this and I am sweaty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. Uh, the, the most intriguing pick for me is when Augie, you know, is hiding, first of all. And then when it comes to it, he goes to Amalia's side, which must feel like the greatest betrayal ever for him to be doing, if that's how he feels, and also from Penance's angle. But for me, it's the first, well, it's the next step, because when we see Augie there at the orphanage already, we know he's rebelling, we know he's taking uh, his life in his own hands. But this, this for me, is him also, you know, that's a hard decision. There's this woman that he's very clearly interested in, and most people would just take their side, that he goes with Amalia, so that's showing, you know, him really coming into his own. Yeah, I guess he is kind of coming into his own because I guess Amalia would need him more than Penance would. Uh, when I saw that at first, I, I thought he was qualifying his rebellion. There was a, 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 there was a hint of cowardice still showing in his behavior. Like, yep. if he really was... Um, in charge of his faculties, he would walk over to Penance's side, but I get what you're saying. I also liked the, just the quick little nimble, just following uh, Bonfire. And then she's like, I'll pay you. Yeah, sure thing, I'm here. <laughs> um, so next, the, the city readies for the hanging and Effie publishes a fake piece on Malady. Now, when I first saw it, I didn't, um, it doesn't give you a lot of chance uh, to really read what's on the paper. Um, and he just very quickly says it's it's a fiction. So I didn't really focus on it. But afterwards, when I rewatched it, I really wanted to focus on that. And yeah, you see that it's you know a piece from Malady's point of view. And he calls it a fiction because he knows that he did not let Effie interview Malady. But now, from the reveal, we know that it's real because she is Malady. So it is a piece written from her point of view that's been put out there for the world to read. Um, it does at this scene, you know, the starting of it, we, when we see her walking out, it doesn't show us a lot of close-ups. It's obviously trying to hide the fact and not show too much uh, that it's not Malady. Because it's strange, if it was her you think that if this was her last moment on the show, it would be showing her heavily. You know, this is her last moment, possibly, or she's about to be rescued. You think it would be really focusing in on her. Um, and then we also hear the the rumbling from underground, which we we know uh, would be the Galanthi and possibly the other team causing a ruckus underground, but we have no idea what they're actually doing. Yeah, I didn't. I actually didn't notice the fake piece on Malady, but you're right. It it is the real piece on on Malady, essentially. And I wonder if that will uh, be the death of Malady as a as a public figure. Maybe once she takes that w wig off, she becomes someone else entirely. Me it goes back to Sarah, maybe. Possibly, yeah. That would be a good way to avoid. Unless, I guess the detective figures out at the end that uh, that wasn't actually Malady, so he, he could very well expose her. But as far as yeah. anybody else knows, Malady is gone. Yeah, and if she does uh, kind of lay low and 
not be this radicalised person anymore. Would Mundy want to let that out into the world? That the police let her slip through their fingers and messed up that royally bad. That's not very good coverage. (laughs) Right, and Penance even remarks very explicitly to Amalia that don't you think it's worth exploring the possibility that malady can be healed? And uh, Amalia just kind of discounts it, but it's kind of like put into the audience's imagination that maybe she can be healed. And I, I was drawing the correlation that if malady can be healed, then maybe all those lobotomies can be healed. Yeah, definite possibility. So we see Malady hang herself, or as we know, it's Malady's henchman. Um, and then her other henchman, the guy that control minds, um, he electrocutes everybody. So we have the whole, you know, Mundy spots penance and this instant look of, oh God, something's, ha- something's going down here, right? Um, something's not right. And I thought that that was... He he instantly says she's gonna kill us. He knows he knows something's off. She's she's gonna kill us all. Everyone that's here, everyone that's come to watch her die, you know, um, they think they're all there to see this spectacle, when in fact they're all there to be part of her spectacle, which is yeah crazy turned on its head. One of the big things. So going back to Hugo, he's there now when he was speaking to Mundy earlier on he seemed like he he wasn't interested in going to this hanging you know he hires the touched why does he want to go see one of them be hanged he doesn't seem interested in it at all she asks him for a favor and then we see him there he comes in with all the the higher up guys but then he jumps down with everybody else to mix among everyone we don't see him as far as I was aware, at all throughout the watching of, of you know, Malady and Bree being brought out and everybody there. It kind of pushes around, focuses on everybody, but we don't see where he went. And then he pops back up at the end, um, scurry back up and Masson pulls him up. It's kind of like, so now I'm just screaming, what was he doing? Why was Why did we not see him? We saw everyone's reactions. We saw everyone there and all the bystanders, but we didn't see what he was doing at all. What was that favour? So you've got the Beggar King uh, lighting bonfires around to stir more trouble in an attempt to convince the Londoners that Masson's extraordinary messages are necessary. Um, And that's just, it's like everybody's just playing off of everybody. Everybody wants to, you know, incite all of this fear and these riots and everything. But in all of it, the most interesting thing we see is after Harriet is on the floor being trodden on. So Sean said to me, I can't believe that she turns the the door to glass, letting everyone escape, and they all tread on her. And I was like, no, I 100% believe that that is is what would happen in real life because people are panicked and that is what they do. People literally in real life, in situations like that, trample on each other and kill each other. It would happen. It does happen. So to see that Malady is the only person, and she's really putting herself out there because if something happened or, you know, her face got nicked or her prosthetic or her wig fell off, she could be totally letting the touch to her after essentially see her. She saves Harriet and afterwards she's given this real look of like, I don't know if it's a what did I just do look or a, you know, should I have done that? Or I'm I'm kind of glad that I helped them because I think maybe she 
didn't want the touch to get caught up in this. This is to show how monstrous the regular folk can be. This is to show how she's the monster who's meant to be on show and meant to be killed. And what she's done is made all of the regular people look like monsters. I don't think her aim was anything other than that, really. Yeah. And and the regular people who, who came to see her executed, they were her targets. And I think yeah. she, she noticed that the touched were trying to rescue her. That might have yeah. played into it. And I, I, I just want to harken back to the, the metaphor idea of just the, the image of her being trampled by all those people was so, um, like, affecting for me. I, I thought that maybe... I would think that would be affecting for her, too, to be trampled yes. on by a society that just is doesn't care about anyone other than, you know, its own interests. So then we see uh, Malady's, or who we think is Malady's body, being removed and her shoe falls off. Uh, we instantly know who it is because we've seen her henchman in the previous episode with her toes cut off. So we know that it wasn't Melody who was hanged, it was actually a devotee. Uh, and then it shows us through several flashbacks throughout the episode, um, you know, leading up to the execution, including the moment that we haven't seen before, which is the actual body swap where she runs past the wall, her double jumps in, and that's... So it wasn't Melody who got her head smashed against the wall. <laughs> it was her her henchman, which is crazy because he really, really hit her hard. So it's Boyle who who is the woman, in fact, who turned up dead in the underground tunnels. And uh, Effie sheds her prosthetics and her wig to reveal that she is, in fact, Melody and that she's been posing as Effie Boyle very, very well. You know, like you say, for someone so maniacal to be able to be so normal it is it you know is the rest of her is she in control of this act that she's putting on because it's almost for us that it should be uncontrollable that is how she is so to see that she's able to just turn a switch and be this other person is kind of crazy for us i've got another point that i picked up on the newspaper where it says uh when it flashback says you will be shocked and that's like, oh, literally, because <laughs> they were all shocked, literally electrocuted. Yeah, I was like, oh, brilliant. And I love Melody at the end. She just wanders off, she gives a little bit of a laugh and she just does the la, <laughs> which I think she's done randomly in the possibly the first episode. Yeah, she's fan- She's just fantastic. Just the joy, the joy of the chaos is palpable. I did want to mention one thing about Harriet, the character Harriet Core, I had this moment of idiotic revelation about her power because we we see so her 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 entire conceit and her her mind space is essentially that she wants to be part of the she wants to be a lawyer. She's studying law. She wants to be part of justice, something that's not generally afforded to brown women. Uh, particularly in that time period. And, um, you know, she's a good student and she's perhaps a better student than her fiancé. And uh, as a result, she's encountering some relationship issues. She's got strong ideals when it comes to justice. So, and then I, I noticed, like, for the last three episodes, we've seen her... Sh- her power is to turn things into glass, right? 
and in the last couple episodes, we we see her several times shattering things that are glass. So when she turned that door to glass, I had the realization that oh, her her power is a manifestation of the idea of her shattering the glass ceiling. Oh right, yeah. Right, which for for the for the listeners who might not know to shatter the glass ceiling is a uh, just a term used for the social construct of this ceiling that women uh have well I guess historically shattered when they were part of the suffragette movement and getting the right to vote and getting the right to own land and you know all, all that type of stuff and and the wage gap and all that sort of stuff I so I, I just wanted to mention that point that I didn't realize so some letters from listeners If you have a comment, theory, or question for us, please tweet it to us at the Nevers Podcast without an A, or send us an email at the Podcast at gmail.com, and we'll read it on an upcoming episode. So, a follow up letter from Berger in the response to our response to his last letter. Hi, I need to clear up a misunderstanding about my last letter. I do not disagree about the Nazi imagery or that Lavinia is a black hat. It just took me until the end of the episode to realise the latter. The point I was making was a little confused and my letter was read right after a very critical one. I actually picked up on the Nazi imagery myself, though the Chosen by God parallel passed me by, and I thought that was a really clever observation. We've had loads of Nazi imagery in the Weedenverse before. It's Nazi Germany and I have Playboys in my locker. And it's certainly not our fault for seeing what is clearly there. While many conflicting interpretations of a show may be valid, I don't think art is quite like a Rorschach block. Instead of trying to reiterate the muddle point from my last letter, I'd like to pose you a question. If you grant the touched need a patron to protect them from the authorities, who should they turn to? Lavinia is clearly a black hat. Augie is nicer, but he's an idiot. He doesn't have his sister's connections and he has put his name to Hugo's Ferryman Club. There's no way he is going to be able to stand up to someone like Masson. Hugo may be an alternative. He doesn't let people bully him and he's quite good at bullying people himself. The problem is that he is trying to turn all the touch into sex workers and I don't get the impression that he's nice about it. The way I see it, Amalia has a problem because she can't keep the police and the mob at bay with Fisdiscus uh, at once. Um, she needs friends in high places and all the current candidates suck. <laughs> they make me miss the Watchers Council. Thank you, Berger. So the main question there is, who should they turn to? That's This is a really good question. I think this really gets to the heart of everything we're questioning. So I would say, um, referring back to the, the chosen people motif, the, the chosen by God, mm. you could very, I think it could very well be a Moses situation, like where Amalia has to be the Moses figure and deliver her people from... Uh, the clutches of Lavinia and Masson herself and just like just like Moses's advantage was that he had God's support so like when the Pharaoh refused uh, God just hit all the Egyptians with a plague I think maybe Amalia's ace in her pocket is the Galanthi which is already giving all the evil people headaches and, you know, that like, there's no Advil in 1896. So <laughs> that could be a compelling reason to give in. But I think ultimately it has to, I think it has to be Augustus. 
even though he's a bit uh, he's a bit uh, 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 lacking in courage right now. He's the the lion from Wizard of Oz. But that's the journey of any character. It's it involves transformation and change and coming into some kind of power that they didn't previously have that they then can use for the good of the people around them. So I think they, I, I at least if I'm having to project, it seems to me that Augustus's position to make that journey and to be of use to the touched in a way that Lavinia, his sister, is clearly not. Yeah, I actually agree with you. Um, I had this kind of burning worry that Amalia might not make it as far as we'd hope in just in terms of like the show in general. I feel like it would be kind of interesting that if the character who can see into the future gets tripped up somehow... Because you'd think that, I don't know, she wouldn't meet an untimely death because she'd be able to avoid it. Although she's already said that she can't avoid what she sees. So, I don't know. If something happens crazy with her and Malady, I feel like it will be Penance that, that steps into the, the leading shoes and it would be Penance and, and Augustus. Um, yeah, Penance has already demonstrated her leadership. But, I I mean, Amalia has like died almost seven times now. <laughs> Yeah, it could happen. I mean, the show is not called Amalia, you know, just like Buffy was called Buffy. Um, and even Buffy, Buffy still died. died. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we have an email from Ebony Smith. So far as we have seen Amalia get hurt or injured, and we've seen an unsteady side to Amalia's reaction with Mary's death, do you think at any point in the show, Penance might get hurt? And if so... How do you think Amalia would react? I think this is interesting because in this episode, um, when Penance is saying that she has this plan of her own to save Malady, she says that that's great, but once she's been shot seven times and so on and so forth, <laughs> she's she's basically saying that she thinks that this plan's going to get Penance killed and she, all she can say to her is be careful. So... Even though she well, has... she does send the lady with the very strong arms to go. <laughs> That's true, yeah. She obviously cares about her a lot, but at the same time, I think she's she's wise enough to give her the freedom that she needs. If she was a controlling character, Penance wouldn't care for her um, because Penance looks after her just as much as she looks after Penance, right? So they have this really nice dynamic. I think that if she were to get really hurt, only, you know, right in front of her, then Amalia would definitely, definitely go crazy um, and definitely kill whoever's just hurt Penance. Also, possibly fall apart afterwards. I think we would definitely see that kind of aftermath. You know, with Mary's death, she goes a little bit off the rails and that's someone that she didn't know. So if she was to see Penance get hurt or even die, I think it would definitely have major reactions, yeah. Yeah, uh, what's that word for when the like the letters are rearranged in a word, it makes another word? I forget. I forget the term for that. Uh, an anagram. Exactly, an anagram. Amalia, I, I haven't done. The, I haven't actually counted the letters, but Amalia feels emotionally like an anagram of malady. So maybe she'll go malady if penance get hurts gets hurt. Uh, but she does refer to penance as a soldier. In I think like the second or third episode, 
and she seems to be very emotionally closed off. But I, I do think you're right. There's there's some genuine love there,、mm-hmm. and I think she would react atypically. You know, it could there could be tears, and I think that if there was someone to hurt Penance, it would be Lavinia, because、uh, Augustus didn't heed her warning. I think Lavinia would be the one to kind of godfather Penance. Okay, so next we have another submission from Scarlett. So let's give a listen. Hi, this is Scarlett Walker again from Birmingham, Alabama. I have two more theories.、Um, one is regarding the calling card with the swan on it that was given to the members of the Pink Rags. I think that that card was given to them by. Alistair Swan, or someone who works for Alistair Swan, Hugo's father, because we've heard about this man. We know he's alive. All we know is that he went crazy.、Um, and they describe the person who gave them the card as posh, but not too uppity. So to me, it works out. And then the other theory is that because Masson describes himself as the Lion, Great Britain, I'm wondering if when his daughter was touched, she somehow turned into this like lioness beast kind of creature with her turn because of him. Okay. Bye. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, you know what? We know that the card wasn't Swans, wasn't Hugo Swans, but not really given much thought into who it was. But I would assume that it would just be Masson making trouble. Yeah, I'm not sure what the connection would be between Hugo's dad and Mary's funeral and the purists,、uh, but clearly someone was trying to provoke the detective. Uh, because of his hatred of Hugo, and by framing Hugo,、uh, right, like right now we don't really know anything about the dad, but now we do know that Masson orchestrated the assassination.、Mm. So to me, it would make sense that he would also frame Hugo, especially after we saw their heated conversation where Lord Masson goes, "You should have drowned." That conversation. I think he totally could be the one behind the card, and then as far as Masson's daughter daughter theory, I totally believe it. I don't think she's dead. I think she's just dead to Masson. Yeah. I think yeah. I think Loki Masson's accusations against the electricity guy's daughter are a very clear indication of his、uh, potentially messed up relationship with his own daughter. Yeah, I mean, I, I did. We did say on yet、yeah, before that. We think that she's possibly some kind of monster. Yeah, I didn't think about lion, but it would be definitely interesting、um, for something that he holds with such pride. You know,、uh, also something that he would hunt to hang on his wall.、Uh, supposedly,、uh, it would. You know, if his daughter turns into something like that, that's a very interesting situation for sure. So yeah, thanks, Scarlett, and if. Any of you would like to send us an audio submission? Just record yourself and send the recording to the Nevers Podcast at gmail dot com, and we'll play it on the show. So,、uh, Crazy Chris B on Twitter says, "In a Whedon show, 
we're used to people dying on us. But did you guys think we'd lose two characters uh, that we thought were going to be a big deal so early in the game, particularly that heartbreaking one? Yeah, I don't think we lost Lucy. Unless the show gets cancelled, I think she'll probably be back. And losing losing Mary was a bit of a gut punch, but I understand, because you can't really have a character with that magical of a power without running into some story issues, so I kind of get that. But my thing is, like, there's so many characters now in this show, and I kind of love all of them. So hopefully, hopefully their sheer quantity doesn't make any of them expendable. Yeah, I think... It's difficult because I think I mentioned this before on one of the other episodes that I don't find a show interesting if you never think any of the main characters are at risk. There, there are a lot of shows like it where they never kill off any of their main characters because, you know, they know that they know from social media being such a huge thing, the, the productions know what characters are super popular and what characters are essentially making them money, which then leads the studios to not get rid of those people uh, even if the writers want it they'll be like you can't get rid of that character they're making us too much money which can really cause a show to go downhill because for me if the main character is invincible then every fight scene i see and every action everything that's happening you know that nothing's going to happen to them um so as much as i do love all of these characters if they're all invincible is there almost a point in in watching it because if it was real life you know would a group of people this large get through life without casualties? Yeah, yeah. That, I think that uh, that invincibility works for more episodic shows like Family Guy and Simpsons and <laughs> things like that, where there's not really much change happening. The characters kind of stay the same yep. every episode, and it's all self-contained. But with a serial show like this one, where characters are changing and evolving, you can't really have death not be a part of that because death is the ultimate change and without that it kind of invalidates life you can't really see that so yeah i i think you're right i agree with you on that so yeah i wasn't necessarily shocked to lose a character very early on and i think at least on the lead up to that the end of the park scene i was it was a little bit of a shock but also i didn't feel a huge loss, if you know what I mean. It was obviously sad and heartbreaking. I don't know, it was necessary for the show to move forward. So Lucy, I did find, I wasn't expecting it. And I found that a bit harder because it was a character that almost, it's like, here's a character that's really great and looks out for everybody. But when you rewatch it, you see that she makes too big a deal. And she's the one that gets most upset at everything. And you're just like, oh, no, you, you learn to not like her as much. So you don't mind when she when she leaves. <laughs> All right, uh, so next we've got an email from Bailey Gross. Uh, she says, uh, True said, when I'm from, I'm so glad you caught that. Good catch, Laura. It completely changes the meaning. Although it makes me wonder about True saying in an earlier episode that she woke up knowing things she shouldn't. Makes me curious how those two statements will line up. I thought when she first said that she meant she also remembered the ship, but now it seems like maybe she meant she knows the future and why the ship was sent through time. But also, Pennant says, I know your burden's true. And then at the end, she's the one that confirms to Harriet that it is a message from someone else. 
so it seems she knows a lot more than anyone else about what's going on as well. Do you think True actually confided in her completely? Bailey. Thank you, Bailey. Uh, yeah. I would hope to think that True told her everything. Um, because they have this, I feel like they have this real level of trust with each other. And for Amalia to get the most out of Penance, she knows that she needs to have Penance fully on board and trusting her. So I I, I think that she, she did confide in her completely. And, and I do think that True doesn't know her own story fully. Because she is confusing. She says things like, you know, she knows about this future. where When, when I'm from this, this and that. And if she is from the future or wherever she's from. And then the next minute she's saying she doesn't know why she was sent here. She woke up, you know, knowing things she shouldn't know. It's, I think, I think she is definitely confused. And maybe as the, um, maybe as the Galathius, uh, you know, starts to crack, maybe her and Malady were both awakened to new insights of their possible previous lives or whatever's going on there. Maybe traveling back in time wipes your memory. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, she's just got a gut feeling that I'm from the future, but she doesn't remember why. Could be a Terminator thing, like she's she's Kyle, just uh, Kyle Reese from the future, uh, sent to the past to save whatever happens from happening. Yeah, and also so far we've only seen her have glimpses of the near future and then directly follow up with those glimpses. But we don't know if she also has glimpses uh, of the far future. You know, we haven't seen that yet, but it's possible that she sees all kinds of stuff. So it might not even be that she's from the future, but that she's had a lot of glimpses of little things from the future. And that's why she's so confused about it. And I'm only just thinking about that right now. (laughs) Yeah, that could be a definite possibility. Yeah, all the characters do know way more than we do as an audience. For sure, yeah. Penance definitely knows the most about Amalia, which is interesting because... Penance is kind of like the most truthful, honest, transparent character in the show. And then her polar opposite would be Amalia, who's the most guarded, uh, closed off, emotionally distant character in the show. So maybe it's a yin-yang thing of uh, opposites complementing each other. But I like their friendship and I have no theories so uh, next in an email from Paul Grizzard, um, love the podcast and your insightful and measured takes on this great show from HBO. A few thoughts on your most recent episode. I agree with you that it seems that the characters at the orphanage seem to know more about Amalia than we do. When Lucy goes into detail about the death of her child and how her turn is a curse, she accusingly asks Amalia, was it you, when discussing how she got touched. This leads me to believe that she knows more about Amalia's backstory than the audience and makes me wonder who else knows. Also, I'd like to put in my agreement to the theory that Amalia is from the future. If the touch seemed to receive turns that somehow relate to and or enhance a pre-existing trait, then Amalia's ability to get glimpses of the future would certainly reflect the fact that she is from another time. Just my thoughts. Keep up the great work, Paul Grizzard. Yeah, I think that's kind of... um following on from the last one that's that's another interesting thing yeah maybe because if she is from the future when she was given it if you know she might not have had i know it could be a possibility that she had her turn already if she's one of these people from the future but if not 
if she's from the future and she receives a, a turn like everybody else, it would make sense that she gets that ability. Maybe she is from the future, and um, but her turn was something new to her. Like when she says, I woke up knowing things that I shouldn't know. Mm. It could be that even though she is from the future and she knows a whole lot, she didn't have the ability to look into the future. And so those ripplings that she's seeing in her mind, that's what drove her to the asylum. Like, why am I seeing into the future? Maybe it's something like that. But because she does, Amalia does respond to Lucy that they messed up. It wasn't supposed to happen that way. Yeah. When Lucy accusingly asks her, was it you? So I don't think Amalia is uh, mind-wiped. I, I think she, she has a lot of information. The new thing is probably just the looking into the future. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, and in far of like, in terms of who knows more about her backstory, I think that Penance definitely knows the most, just because I think Amalia trusts her the most. I think she did confide a lot in Lucy because, as she mentioned, you know, she was the first adult. She was the first person that she felt she didn't have to look after, so she could probably confide in her a lot more about her own insecurities and, you know, issues with her past. Um, but yeah, it seems like now everybody knows at least the bullet points of Amalia's past and and the Galanthi. So. Yeah, we are the ones to learn. <laughs> so now we have from Tharias Unlimited on Twitter. He tweeted to us and he said, I'm calling it. Lavinia's the one who had Mary killed. It had to be someone with enough influence to get Gatling gun arm guy released from jail. And Masson is too obvious. I thought the same thing, man. I, you, you can join my fan club. <laughs> uh, 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 we meet up and we're incorrect about things. <laughs> right right now, it's just me, uh, a couple weathermen, and uh, all, all the people who thought the world was ending in 2012. <laughs> Welcome to join. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, I, I was with you. I thought that it was probably Lavinia. But yeah, no, it's it's 100% Masson now, and we know that. And uh so uh, Cloyster Hearted on YouTube says, I kind of got the sense that Massa knows a bit more about True and her situation than we as the audience do at present. Something about his wording in that conversation, how he pointedly ref uh, referenced the woman um, who should have known unless she did. And the further insinuation that the enemy was Britain itself. The whole episode was loaded with symbolism of the British Empire, Malady wearing a cropped red coat in the scene at the police station, the reference to the lion, which I'm trying not to jump to, uh, to connect to the Masson's touched daughter, a uh, literal enemy in his basement. And then we find out that the thing speaking to True is living in the heart of the nation, which Masson seems to know about, or at least sense. Also, I know everyone has high hopes for Augie, but I find him kind of sus. Uh, as Hugo's best friend and now having access to the ferryman, Augie could easily have got hold of Hugo's stationery to send that note. Part of me feels like we were shown the Lavinia connection way too early, but that perhaps this was done intentionally so that she could be used as a decoy to get us to suspect her when really Augie is the one with some deeper agenda. I have yet to back up any of these means without motive, but there may be something in Augie's comment about the barbaric nature of his kind. Yeah, 
Aki does keep getting accused by penance of all the crimes. Murder, <laughs> voyeur. Um, I haven't seen any indication that he secretly hates Hugo, though, and, and would frame him. I think uh, Hugo is one of his only friends, so uh, if, if he was to have beef with anyone, it's probably his sister, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think if it turned out that through all of this, Augie is some real dark kind of guy with a bit of evil to him, it would be a real kind of like usual suspects thing, wouldn't it? He'd be playing that part so well of the awkward, shy guy that, <laughs> you know, seemingly can't do anything or be in control of anything and then it turns out that he's been working the strings behind the whole time. That would definitely you know, be, yeah. <laughs> you know, now that I think of it, it would be interesting that conversation he had with Lavinia where she kind of says, there's, uh, there's vultures everywhere uh, dressed up in hats and silk or whatever she was saying. Mm. If he is in fact the evil one, <laughs> he's the vulture that nobody knows about and he's dressed up in his, in his coat. Uh, that came from Hugo, I guess. Um, yeah, that would be interesting, but I, I don't foresee that happening. But then again, uh, I don't know. Yeah, we've not but well seen. spotted <laughs> with the symbolism. That's interesting. Mm. So we have an email from Steve. Uh, I don't know if this was mentioned. The death year of the girl's mother was the same as the girl's birth. I think this means that Masson's wife died in childbirth. That would explain why he is so against the touched, especially if the incident turned his daughter into a monster or killed her. Uh, yep. Yeah, I did pick up on that when it went past the, the, the headstones um, and made the same conclusion that she must have died at childbirth. So that's already a reason for him to just kind of, you know, hate the world. Um, also, his uh, maid or, you know, um, mistress of the house is you know, wanting him to get a mistress and he's really against it and you can really understand why if his previous wife died at childbirth and he's then bringing up his daughter why he wouldn't have wanted to bring a love another lady into the house possibly and then yeah I mean he would definitely be against the touch I, I think the whole thing with him is he's so set in his ways uh, and he did seem to be happier in that little glimpse we saw of him with his daughter but if they touched essentially you know not through any thought of their own but whatever caused the touch killed his daughter or turned her into a monster he's definitely got <laughs> a real valid reason to hate them yeah that must be why he's looking for a cure yeah again it seems like both uh, evil parties are deep down looking for a cure which is in essence possibly good do we know if Lavinia is looking for a cure? Because I know some people think she is, but it's never mentioned explicitly. Maybe a cure for herself? Maybe a cure for her own handicap? It would be, yeah, because we're not sure how she lost the use of her legs, but we know that she did have the use at one point because we mentioned the ice skating. She thinks that maybe she should have been one of the touched and that's why she's doing this. You know, if only she had gained some ability even if it was the ability to walk again and she feels maybe kind of scorned that she wasn't one of these chosen few that got something um so our last letter is from carol who wrote us an email i wanted to comment on how detailed and informative your podcast is compared to the other podcast with the giggly girls so thank you carol 
Uh, I haven't heard your commentary on the fourth episode, but did anyone catch in episode three where Lord Messon is leaving his estate and passes the grave of his wife and daughter? Notice the dates of death and birth. It seems the wife died giving birth to his daughter and the daughter's death was listed on the day of the incident. Did anyone notice the man is all in the phone system at Messon's estate, discovers the basement and sees and hears noise and movement coming from behind a door? The housemaid appears behind him and says the dogs have gone rabid and hurries him past the door. Are we sure Lord Masson's uh, daughter is dead? Love your theories and details. Yeah, I think we've covered that. So I, I'm almost 100% certain that, yeah, that's his daughter in the in the dungeon. Agreed, yeah. I'm positively convinced that she's not dead. She's, she's, she's in there. It'll be really interesting if at some point she escapes and she kills him. <laughs> and he's, yeah, he meets his his own end with uh, by his daughter's hand and then she can go off and live at the orphanage with everybody else happily <laughs> like to be imprisoned by your own father is uh would definitely make you angry <laughs> so uh yeah thanks again for all of your letters it's great hearing from you all uh please keep them coming if we didn't read your letter on this episode we'll be sure to get it on our next one cool so uh some final thoughts I thought this was a very sexy episode. I give it a, a sexy nine out of ten. It was uh, I it was my favorite one yet, uh, uh, with the exception of the very first episode. I think this one's my favorite. I enjoyed the the, the characters, the story. I enjoyed the twist. Twists usually don't. I don't. I usually don't love twists as much as just like plot devices as oh look it was a dream the whole time or some jacob's ladder shit but i i i this one felt fun and crazy and oh man the the double thing it was very shakespearean in that kind of way uh it was yeah i i really loved this episode it was fun and um yeah I do, is mary going to stay dead yeah i think she is going to stay dead uh what am uh, what are you, uh, what am I hoping to see in the ensuing episodes? I think in the next episode we're gonna see the second half of the quest that Amalia did with her group. Um, it it feels almost like a Mission Impossible thing <laughs> where they're they're gathering their crew and they're going on their thing and uh, the puzzle the puzzle pieces will all come together after the next episode. So I'm excited to see more about the Galanthi. And I'm excited to use the word Galanthi in my normal conversation. And uh, yeah, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, so yeah, same as you, I really enjoyed this episode. I thought it was fantastic. There was so much going on. I watched it a second time and enjoyed it just as much. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing the sixth episode and then going back and watching one six back to back. I think that that as a, almost like a mini well not a mini uh, an extended movie will be very very enjoyable experience um yeah i like how you're at a bit of a loss at this episode because everybody is really and you know knows what's happening and we don't and it's a good pace again i liked uh same as you the the reveal of the twist i mean like i say i noticed that it was malady for sure but I was still questioning whether it was just a straight swap because there's so many things that it could be. Maybe Malady 
is like a split personality in that what we were seeing was uh, Sarah and that's Malady in the cell and she'd split into two people somehow. I don't know. All these things go through your head because this show is so unpredictable. <laughs> I liked... Yeah, so when it ended, my first thought was, yep, yeah, next episode, hopefully we're going to see what the other team got up to and it will go back to them going on their mission and we'll see what happened. I'm assuming there was a huge explosion underground. We saw the ground shaking and uh, Bonfire Annie looks like she's been burnt quite badly. Augie's uh, been hit on the head and injured. You know, everyone was injured, and we need to see how that all how that all happened. So yeah, I'm super excited for the next episode. And I mean, I'm sure it's going to end just as cliffhangery and really keep us on our toes for the next half of the season. I don't know. I don't think we're going to get too many answers. But at the same time, they are going to directly uh, investigate the, the Galanthi. So all manner of things could happen. Like you said, they could uprise and all of the the other touched um, pitch in and help them do whatever's going to happen. We will see. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, it's funny about Mary. Uh, they talked about her a lot and it was almost like they were talking about her. You know, she's not coming back. But I don't know. She has some kind of connection with the Galanthi, um, sharing the voice. And maybe, I don't know, she was like an astral projection of, of, of whatever the Galanthi is. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just getting thinking here. But yeah, I really enjoyed this episode and I'm very much looking forward to the next one. So uh, yeah, that's it for this episode of the podcast. And if you enjoy the Nevis podcast, we would, of course, like it if you left us a positive review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music Podcasts, YouTube, and wherever else you stream your podcasts. For more Nevis-related content, uh, you can find us on the web at hbothenevers.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hbothenevers and at the Nevers Podcast and also at the Nevers Podcast without the A uh, on Twitter. Any comments or questions can be sent to theneverspodcast at gmail.com. Please also rate and review our podcast and help us reach more listeners. Uh, yeah, that's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening and thank you, Chirag, for joining me today and sharing your thoughts on the, on the, uh, the fifth episode. Um, so where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me uh, just dating in a chrysalis underground. Uh, thank, thank you for listening. And I'm Laura, and you can find me on Instagram at uh, laurajp1721. And uh, yeah, until next week, this has been the Nevers Podcast. Bye bye. This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, produced, and edited by Matthew Yamanashi at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on the Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers Podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. 
The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders.